Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. All right, well, hey, uh, we concluded a series last weekend in the book of James. How many grateful to be done with that series? Uh, Okay. (coughs) Fooled you there for a second. That's good. Uh, yeah, we were in that series for a really long time, and uh, we're not anymore. Thank you, Jesus. Uh, but uh, my wife preached an amazing message closing the series out last week. Uh, yeah, come on, give it up for my bride. I got a chance to check out the podcast this week, and I learned that if my prayers are passionate and I understand my position as a righteous person in Jesus, uh, that my prayers can be effective. Uh, I also discovered by listening to the podcast that apparently our first year of marriage was a lot more difficult than I realized, and that uh, it required medication for her to get through it. So that's cool. Oh, what happens when I'm away? Uh, The reason I had to listen uh, to the podcast is because last week I had an opportunity to go to a church in Georgia that we've been friends with for a number of years, and uh, they gave rather significantly to help this church get started. And it was really cool because I got to see over the last five years how their church has grown and what God's doing there. Uh, But I also got to share with them that their investment has produced some great fruit. As you look around the room this morning, some great fruit here in San Francisco and in the most unreached uh, and unchurched city in the country as of a couple of weeks ago. I got to tell them that over 200 people have made a decision to follow Jesus here at the Father's house. So come on, that's a clapper. Let's give Jesus a round of applause. So in light of Easter coming up in a few weeks, uh, we didn't want to jump into a brand new series yet. Uh, I'm going to preach what we would call a one-off message this, this morning, just something that's on my heart that I feel will help us out and challenge us a little bit. And this message is going to fall into the category of things you already know. Turn to the person next to you and say, I already know. Yeah, I already know. It's going to fall into the category. Now, I know what you're thinking because you're like, okay, well, if I already know it, then why are we going to talk about it? (laughs) Well, you've probably realized this in your life by now. Knowledge does not always make its way to application, correct? Sometimes we know things, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we're doing those things. Uh, We all know we're not supposed to text and drive, but I see you out there. I've been behind you while you're swerving in the lane and you're texting and driving. Uh, We all know that we should probably eat a little bit healthier and diet, but bacon. Uh, And uh, bacon, yeah, that's what keeps us from dieting. (laughs) Uh, And we all know that we should read our Bible and pray more, and we should live kind, and we should do the things the Bible tells us to do. But often that knowledge doesn't work its way into application. And the reason for that is because sometimes application, ready, here's the Baptist preacher in me, application requires inspiration. Sometimes we, need, hey. <laughs> Sometimes we need to be inspired in order to apply what we know. While we all know we shouldn't text and drive, inspiration can come in the form of a police officer that has pulled you over and given you a ticket and told you to stop texting and driving, and suddenly you're inspired to stop doing that and do what you know to do. Uh, my wife and I are going on a vacation in a couple of months, and I know that we'll be on a beach, and uh, that is my inspiration right now, to diet and to work out a little bit more than I currently am. So it's called inspiration. And today, in the house of God, I want to do my best to inspire us to do something we already know, because in environments like this, if God gets a hold of our heart, if he stirs something on the inside of us, we can begin to apply what we already know to do in our world. So I'm going to do my best to inspire you over the next couple of moments. And here's what I want to look, out, uh, look at and the, the, the thought I want to unpack. Um, there is a scripture in the book of Proverbs, chapter 18, verse 21, 
And you've heard this scripture before if you've been around church for any length of time. Uh, even if you just joined us for our last series, we mentioned it in the week where we were talking about the power of our words and the power of the tongue. Uh, but it says this, that life and death are in the power of the tongue. That we have the ability to speak life or to speak Death. Now, we know that to be true metaphorically, meaning I can say something about you over you and I can bring life. I can say, hey, you're a man of God, you're a woman of God, you're called, there's some purpose on your life, and it can stir up life inside of you. And to the other side of that, I can speak negatively over you and I can call you names or I can diminish you or I can, I can humiliate you and I can, I can bring death, so to speak, over your life. But here's what I want to consider for the next couple of moments. What if that scripture... Is a, is a little more literal than we realize. What if our words actually have the power to produce life or death? Let me say it like this. What if our words actually have the power to bring eternal life or to bring eternal death? I, I think that they do. Uh, my, my wife and I, we've been studying heaven quite a bit over the last, not that we intend to go there anytime soon, um, <laughs> but we've been studying heaven uh, quite a bit over the last couple of weeks uh, in preparation for a series we're going to do in the fall. We're going to talk about eternity and kind of unpack heaven and what does that look like and what does eternal state look like and all that stuff. And I'm really excited about the series. But as I've been studying for the series, I, I'm, I'm reminded once again that this ain't it. This, this world that we live in and this life that we put so much importance on and the things that we chase after in, in 2019, this ain't it. There's something so much greater beyond what we see with our eyes. There's a greater reality than that which we behold with our eyeballs. There, there's a greater life than the one that we're living right now. And there is a more tragic death than the death that we will all inevitably face at one point in our days here on the earth. There, there is an eternity to speak of. And I'm reminded once again that eternity is what we should be living for. And the decisions we make on this side of, of, of heaven and this side of eternity really do affect our eternal state. Some, some, all of us are going to spend eternity somewhere. And that somewhere is dependent on how we live our lives here on this earth. And namely what we do with Jesus here on this side of eternity. And my pastor used to say it like this, that life is short, eternity is real, and people matter most. Like if, if you're looking for a life mantra, there it is. Life is short, eternity is real, and people matter most. Now, if that's true, then again, I want to consider this thought. How much truth is there to the statement that our words bring eternal life or eternal death? Can a conversation you have on this side of eternity bring about eternal life to somebody else? Do our words carry that kind of an impact? So I want us to open up our Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 10, and I'm going to read a couple scriptures, we'll pray, and then we'll get into this. But Romans chapter 10, verse 9, a very familiar passage of scripture if you've been in church for any length of time. Here's what it says. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you're going to be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it is by confessing with your mouth that you are saved. Now, that's where most of us leave that scripture off. You've heard that said at the end of a sermon and everyone's heads are bowed and the pastor makes that statement. And you're like, okay, if I confess, I believe, okay, I'm saved. But the scripture doesn't actually end there. It goes on in a couple verses later in 13 to say, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? How can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? 
That is why the scriptures say, how beautiful are the feet of the messengers who bring the good news. Here's what I want to title this chat as we jump in this morning. I am the messenger. I am the messenger. Come on, talk to your neighbor one more time because you're really talking this morning. Look at him and say, I'm the messenger. I'm the messenger. <laughs> Let's pray and get into this. Jesus, we love you this morning. I thank you for your presence. I thank you for that song that Carlos wrote, that brand new song that we got to sing this morning and the declarations that we're making as we lead up to Easter and how you overcame the grave and how you've given us life. And we're grateful today that as we stand in your presence, as we're in this place, uh, we can do so from a position of victory. None of us in the room have to be defeated. None of us have to walk in with the heaviness we came with. We can leave this place victorious and filled with the spirit of God. And I pray over the next couple of moments as we study your word, that that very reality would take place inside each one of us. If anyone walked in here today downcast, anyone walked in confused, anyone walked in depressed or anxious or whatever's hanging over them, I pray that right now, by the power of your word, by the power of your spirit, that that stuff would lift, it would break off, and that we would experience the life that is available to us in you. Challenge us today to do something we already know to do, but inspire us in a way where we can apply that knowledge to our everyday life. We love you. Thank you in advance for what you're going to do in these few precious moments together. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. It has been said that everybody's favorite sound is the sound of their own voice. Um, but do you know anybody in the room, maybe not in this room, maybe in another room you've been in, who has taken that a little too seriously, that really likes to talk? Come on, how many have kind of an over-talker in your life? Someone who spends about an hour, hour and a half on the phone with you? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. The verbal vomiter, the audio assaulter, that person for sure. And... Uh, I know that by nature of what I'm doing right now, it would be assumed that if anyone in the room was an overtalker, it would be this guy with the Picasso shirt on on stage, uh, for he does have a microphone and his voice is amplifying over into hundreds of ears right now in this room. But I like to believe that I'm a rather socially aware individual, uh, that I know when someone is done listening to what I have to say, and then I know how to keep my mouth shut. I like to believe that about myself, because you know this and I know this, nobody likes the overtalker. You, you avoid the overtalker at all costs, okay? And I'm, I don't mean to make anybody in the room uncomfortable because you might be that person, but you've had this moment where the phone rings and you see the caller ID and you immediately think to yourself, do I have the emotional equity to invest in this conversation? And what do you do? You send them in a voicemail. And then as you send them in a voicemail, they send you that novel of a text message and they're like, you know, please call me back so we can talk about it. By the way, if your phone calls are often ignored, you might be that person. Just throwing that out there for consideration today. Yeah, no one likes the overtalker. Everybody avoids the overtalker. But the, the worst place to encounter someone of this breed, because you cannot escape them, is on an airplane. <laughs> Have you ever sat next to somebody on an airplane that you just wish they would shut up? Come on, let's be real. Okay. Like, they just will not stop talking. And you're like, I'm just trying to, like, go to sleep, watch a movie. I just, I don't want to have this conversation right now. True story, last week, uh, as I was flying from, I, I was in Washington for Thursday, Friday, and I flew home for a couple of hours to say hi to my wife and kids and then jumped on a red-eye flight uh, at 11.15 to head to Atlanta. And uh, when I was standing in line for the red-eye flight, um, I looked next to me, and the person standing next to me looked oddly familiar. And for a second, I, I couldn't figure out who it was, but then I realized, oh, my gosh, this is, this is a legend next to me in line. It is none other than Del Curry. Steph Curry's dad is standing right next to me in line. 
And he's, uh, he's an NBA all-star and just an amazing, amazing basketball player. Obviously, his greatest claim to fame is that he had two kids. Uh, <laughs> but I'm standing next to Del Curry in the line, and I'm trying not to be too starstruck. I'm like, you know, I don't want to be that guy. I walk up like, hi. <laughs> so... I get in line, and he's standing in front of me, and uh, he takes his boarding pass, and he scans it, and sure enough, Mardell Curry right there, and I'm like, oh, this is going to be awesome. So I figured, okay, I'll just give him a high five or a handshake and say, hey, good to have you on the flight. Uh, if you're here, I know the plane ain't going down, or something stupid like that on the way in. <laughs> well, I sit down, and as I sit down, guess who my neighbor is? Right in the seat next to me is Mardell Curry, and I'm like, Yes! So I said something really stupid, like, hey, if you get tired, you can lay your head on my shoulder. <laughs> he looks at me kind of sideways, and he's like, I'm good. I'm like, my name's Tim. Good to meet you. And we talked for a few minutes, and I may or may not have suggested that his son attend our church and tithe here, but that's neither here nor there. But after about five or ten minutes of conversation, uh, Del Curry does what most people do on an airplane. He grabs a set of these guys and he puts them over his ears. Now, this is the universal sign for, I don't want to talk to you right now, and we should all recognize that. And so when he put his headphones on, I immediately said, okay, window over, that's fine. And I took myself a little nap, and I, being the socially aware individual I was, waited till the end of the flight and said, really nice to meet you, sir, have a great day. Now, if karma was real, my flight home would have allowed for an equally as socially aware individual to sit next to me. But I hate to burst your little karma bubble, it's not real, okay? Because on the way home, heading home from Atlanta, none other than Southern Bill, the overtalker, the conversational fire hydrant stands and, or excuse me, sits next to me. And about two minutes into the flight, I put on my headphones to ignore this individual sitting next to me. And about every 20 seconds, I get one of these. Hey, brother, uh, how you doing out here? Good to see you. And I'm like, hey, it's good to have you here. Uh, my name is Bill. Hey, Bill, I'm Tim. Nice to meet you. Man, can you believe they're serving goldfish and che cheddar cheese? It's on this plane these days. This is amazing. And I'm like, yeah, it's really great. And I'm looking at the movies, just trying to ignore the conversation. And Man, you know, I just, man, I just, these, these, these airline stewardesses, they can just get a, a flight anytime and go travel. Can you, but wouldn't it be nice to be an airline stewardess and you can go do whatever you want to do? I said, well, I'd be an airline steward, but you know, whatever, that's fine. And, you know, <laughs> and I'm just doing my best to ignore this conversation. And inevitably, he asks the question that everybody on a plane asks. He said, so what do you do, brother? And I have to make a decision. Am I going to lie? Or am I going to be honest in this moment? So my headphones allow for me to just touch the side of it so I can have a conversation. I didn't even bother to take off the headphones just because I figured that would be a sign. And I thought, well, I could say I'm unemployed. Because technically I am. Like, we do this volunteer at the church, all right? So, like, I'm like, don't really have a job, per se. I'm like, no, that's stretching the truth. And then I'm like, what about motivational speaker? Let's go with motivational speaker. <laughs> like, no. So finally I tell him, I'm a pastor, and he's like, oh, brother, well, let's talk about that for the next three and a half hours. And I'm like. <laughs> so for the remainder of the flight, I got to hear about Southern Bill's life and how his dad was a Methodist pastor and how he'd gotten hurt by the church and he hadn't been in a really long time. 
And by the end of that flight, because Bill was where, uh, from where I was coming from, I had an opportunity to tell him about a church that I was just at and invite him to go the next Sunday. And I gave him the contact information for the church. And he promised me as we got off the plane, I'm going to make my way to church. It's going to be awesome. And I felt a, like a little better human as a result of the conversation that we had. But if I'm being honest, what I really wanted to do on that flight was just relax. I just wanted to stare at the screen in front of me. I wanted to have my headphones on. It had been four days of travel and seven sermons, and I was just ready to pass out. I was ready to consume myself with myself. I just wanted to be by myself, focus on myself, work on myself, and ignore the person next to me. I wanted to say, hey, when I picked this seat by the window, it was so that I could sleep on it, not talk to you. But because I was willing to engage in a conversation, somebody who had spent 30 years out of church now has an opportunity to step back into something that he's been distant from, a relationship with Jesus that he's been distant from for far too long, all because of a simple conversation. See, here's what I've noticed, and maybe you've noticed this about your own life as well. I can walk right off that plane, and I can apply the same broken logic of self-serving to the world that I live in. I can make this thing called Christianity all about me. I can allow my personal condition to keep me from some conversations. Think about this for a moment. The series we just concluded in the book of James was a very self-focused series. We talked about how you can overcome temptation. We talked about how we can do a better job with our words and how we can become more life-giving with our conversations. We talked about the fact that we want to obey God's word and how we can do a better job obeying it and producing fruit and faith without works and I wanna have works along with my faith and we talked about how our prayer lives can improve and all of that stuff is great. I believe that Jesus wants us to become the best version of the Christian he's called us to be on this side of heaven. Self-improvement is not a bad thing, but if we are not careful we can make the entirety of our faith about becoming a better version of a Christian before we see Jesus, while we ignore the rest of the conversations that are available to us in this world. I don't know if you've fallen into this trap, and I have many times, where I have made the success of Christianity all about me reading my Bible more and praying more and sinning less all the while ignoring everybody else in the world because I've made my faith all about me. And I'm not trying to shove that on you today or make you feel guilty for it. I'm simply here to invite us to consider something for a moment that perhaps our faith is not just all about us. Perhaps Jesus is a little less concerned with our sin patterns and a little more concerned with our effectiveness in telling the world around us about this Savior that we have encountered, that we have fallen in love with, and that has transformed our lives. Perhaps we're here to enter into some conversations. Like, I'm in the room today, and you are in the room today, because there were some people before us that did not become completely consumed with becoming better versions of themselves, but were more concerned about getting the good news of Jesus out to the world that they found themselves in. The disciples, those 12 guys, the rowdy ones that Jesus hung out with, they were far less concerned with becoming better versions of themselves. And if you don't believe me, just go ahead and read the New Testament a little bit and find out that they still had plenty of sin left in their life. 
but they also became overly consumed with what Jesus asked them to do as he departed from the planet. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Translation, go tell everybody you come into contact with what you've seen and what you've heard. Tell them about me. And we're here today because they chose to take Jesus up on his word. Jesus did not say, hey, go therefore and sin less. <laughs> he did not say, go therefore and become a better version of yourself. Spend the next 85 years on the planet just trying to clean your act up to get, so that one day when you see me in heaven, I can go, well, you cleaned up pretty good. No. He said, go and open up your mouth and be the herald and be the messenger of the good news. I think one of the saddest scriptures in the Bible is in Judges chapter 2 where it says that one generation died off and another generation arose and that new generation never heard about the good things God had done and never heard about the miracles that God had done in Israel and because of that they turned their backs on God and they began to follow the gods of other nations around them. Why? Because they never heard about the goodness of God. I think that we need to live with this tension and this understanding that at any given moment, we are one generation away from spiritual genocide if we choose to stay silent about what God is doing in our lives. But it's up to us. It is our job. It is our responsibility. It is our greatest mandate to be the messengers of the good news that has been entrusted to us. And listen, I understand there's fear associated with that and whether it's the fear of judgment or whether it's the concern that your life doesn't align with the scriptures you say you believe in or whatever the case may be, a general lack of concern about people's eternity. But this is what we are here for. That's why we're on this planet. That's why we're at this church, to be messengers of the good news. Let me illustrate it like this. Uh, there's a story in the Bible, uh, in, in the book of Esther, and the year is 475 B.C. And in 475 B.C., I'm going to sit down for this if that's all right. <laughs> Story time with Tim. Okay. <laughs> 475 B.C., and this time Xerxes is the king of Persia, in modern-day Babylon. And uh, there's 127 provinces, and in those provinces, many of the Israelites who'd been brought back into captivity were living. Many of them had found themselves in bondage again as a result of their disobedience to God. They turned their back on them, and so now they find themselves once again back enslaved to the Persian Empire at the hands of King Xerxes. Well, King Xerxes has a, has a, a dinner one day or an event one day, and uh, his wife kind of disrespects him publicly, Queen Vashti, very cool name. And he decides to dis, uh, depose his queen as a result of her disrespect. And now he's single. And a little bit of time goes by and he's okay with it. But finally he's like, man, I, I really wish I had a queen again. I miss a bride. And so one of his advisors suggests to him, hey, what if we go throughout the entire kingdom and we find all of the beautiful virgins all throughout the kingdom and we bring them into your harem and you can look at all these ladies, have the conversations, engage with them and decide which one you'd like to become your new queen. And he's like, that sounds great. So they go all throughout the Persian Empire. They bring all of the virgins into his harem. And these virgins undergo 12 months of beauty treatments before they are brought before the king. 12 months. 12 months of essential oils and pedicures and manicures and waxing and massaging. And Come on, how many of you say 12 months of that just sounds really good? I'm not even a virgin and that sounds good to me, okay? That's inappropriate. Well, among the virgins that are gathered into the harem is a young girl by the name of Hadassah, also known as Esther. 
And Esther uh, is a Jewish gal, but at the direction of her cousin Mordecai, who had raised her, he asks her to keep her identity a secret. Don't tell the king that you're Jewish because if you do, there's a good chance he's not going to consider you. So just keep your identity a secret and go along with the program. So Esther goes about these 12 months of beauty treatments, and at the end of 12 months, she's looking really good. You better look good after 12 months. My God. If you can't, just stop. So <laughs> she's been Botoxed, and she looks great, and she shows up before the, ki the king, and the king looks at her, and he's like, yeah, this is the girl. And Esther is now elevated to queen of Persia. She becomes the queen Second in command of the king. Life is good for five years. But about five years later, the king elevates another person in his kingdom, uh, a guy by the name of Haman, to be second in charge of all the provinces. And Haman's a pretty wicked dude. Haman is not just a wicked guy. Haman hates the Jewish people. He hates the Jewish people because Esther's cousin, Mordecai, refuses to bow down and serve him when everybody else in the temple courts bows down as Haman walks past to show their honor and respect for him. And because Mordecai chooses to stand in his presence, he develops this deep, intense hatred for the Jewish people. So much so that one day, because of Mordecai's actions, he goes to the king and he says, listen, there's a group of people in our kingdom aren't really on board with us. They don't serve the same gods we do. They don't worship the same way we do. And I think it would be best if we murder all of them, just execute every single one of them and rid the earth of the Jewish people. And the king, unknowing that his own queen is a Jewish person, decides to give permission. And this guy Haman is given a, an execution date to go throughout all the provinces of Persia and execute all the Jews. Well, needless to say, as this information makes its way to all of the different provinces, the Jews begin to weep, and they mourn, and they fast, and they're trying to figure out, is God going to rescue us from this situation? Mordecai ends up at the gates of the palace, and he's ripped his clothing, and he's wearing sackcloth and ashes, and an outward sign of, of mourning, and uh, one of the messengers from Queen Esther comes to Mordecai, and he's like, what's going on? He's like, go tell Esther that there has been a death sentence issued for the Jewish people and that we need her help. Messenger goes to Esther and shares it with him. And she's like, what am I supposed to do? Goes back and says, the queen doesn't know what to do. And he says, tell the queen, regardless of whether or not she thinks she's going to be able to skirt this one because the king doesn't know she's Jewish, it's only a matter of time before her identity is revealed. She's not going to skate out of this free and clear. And then he has this famous conversation that you've heard before. He says, tell the queen that perhaps, maybe, maybe she is in her position of authority. Maybe she has been elevated. Maybe she is born and put on the planet for such a time as this, where her voice, her words, her conversation could bring life to a group of people. So the messenger goes back to Esther and shares with her what Mordecai says and she says, okay, I'm going to fast. I'm going to pray for three days, tell all the Jewish people to do the same. And even though the king has not called for me for another month, I'm going to go early and hope he doesn't put me to death. So three days later, she shows up to the king. And Xerxes stretches out his gold scepter as a sign that she is allowed into his presence. And he says the same thing I say to my wife when she comes in the room. What can I do for you, my bride? Up to half my kingdom. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. So she comes in and she says, hey, um, I'd like you to have lunch with me tomorrow. 
And actually, if you could, would you bring your friend Haman along as well? And he says, sounds like a great plan. So they show up for lunch the next day, and the king repeats himself, and he says, hey, what do you want? Oh, up to half my kingdom. I'll give you anything you want. She says, well, I'd like for you to come back again for lunch tomorrow, and then I'll tell you what I truly want. And so Haman and the king uh, determined to come back the following day for lunch, and Haman leaves the presence of the king and the queen, and on his way out the door, there's Mordecai, standing as stiff as a board, refusing to bow down to him, while everybody else in the temple courts is bowing down, and he is ticked. He goes home, and he erects a pole to to have Mordecai murdered on and impaled on, and he begins to tell his family how angry he is about the whole situation. And the next morning, he goes back to the king before the luncheon in hopes that the king will give permission to murder Mordecai, one of the Jews, before the rest of the Jews are executed. And I won't give you all the details because I want to inspire you to go back and read the story, but a rather ironic thing happens as a result of a king's dream. And Mordecai is not put to death. In fact, he is elevated and honored across the kingdom. But then the luncheon comes. And as the luncheon takes place, here's Esther and the king and Haman sitting about to eat. And before they eat, the king looks at Esther and he says, what do you want? What are we here for? And she says, oh, king, I ask for your permission to live and not die. He looks at her kind of inquiring, what what, what are you talking about? What, What do you mean die? Who would dare lay hands on my queen? And she smiles. And she looks over at Haman. <laughs> she points. He gone. The king ironically murders Haman the very same way that Haman planned to murder Mordecai. But after this whole luncheon and this whole dramatic scenario, Esther comes back to the king and she says, listen, there's this death sentence that you have issued so that all the Jewish people are murdered on a set day. And I am, in fact, a Jewish person. And by executing the Jewish people, you are choosing to execute me. And I'm asking you for permission to live and not die. And so the king makes this decree that the Jewish people can live and not die. That they do not have to be subject to the previous judgment of the king. But there's a problem. The king lives in the the capital of Susa. And while there is a herald that stands in the streets and declares to the streets of Susa that the Jews can live and not die, there are still 126 other provinces where there are Jewish people living that do not know that the king has made a declaration that they can live and not die. They do not know about this good news. And so I want you to see what the king does here in the book of Esther, chapter 8, verse 14. Here's what it says. A copy of this decree was to be issued in law in every province and and proclaimed to all the peoples so that the Jews would be ready to take revenge on their enemies on the appointed day. So, look at this, this sentence. Urged on by the king's command, the messengers rode out swiftly on fast horses bred for the king's service. Let me me tell you the significance of this statement. There was a pending day where death was inevitable, where the Jews were going to be executed, and yet a new sentence had been issued where they could live. But these messengers understood that if they didn't get to the provinces on time, that these Jews who could choose to live were ultimately going to die. 
And so they got on some horses that were bred for the king's service, and they said, I am urged on by this command of life to get myself to these provinces in time so that every person who is destined to die can actually experience the life that is now available to them at the mouth of the king. Come on, I hope you get what I'm putting down this morning. I hope you're mopping up what I'm spilling, because this is not just a story that we can look at in the Old Testament and celebrate that a group of people got to keep their lives. This is our story. There has been a death sentence issued over our city. There is a death sentence issued over your friends and your family members and your coworkers and your schoolmates. And as far as they're concerned, it is inevitable that they will die and they can never experience anything beyond the life that they know right now. But there is a king who has made a declaration that they can live and they don't have to die. And he is not willing that anybody would perish, but that all would come to eternal life in him. But it's not enough that he said it. It's not enough that the king has decreed it. These people are never going to make their way into the courts of this church to hear the good news apart from some messengers that have a sense of urgency to say, you know what? I am not content living in my little box, knowing what I know about life. No, I will go and I will be the mouthpiece and I will be the messenger to declare the good news of Jesus Christ to a dying and broken world that I find myself in. You are the messenger. Let me have a bit of a Mordecai chat with you here this morning. Perhaps we are here for such a time as this. Perhaps we are sitting in this room on this date in a building that God has so graciously blessed us with on the corner of major intersections in the Sunset District because God is not willing for any of the 220,000 people in this district and the nearly million people in this city and a 5 million people radius around us to perish. Perhaps we're here because our vision statement is not just our vision statement, but it's God's heart that the Father's house exists so that people would discover life in Jesus. Maybe we're here for such a time as this. I think, I think it's true. I think that's why God put us here. Because there's a lot of people that simply don't know that life is available to them. And I get it. It's, it's risky to share your faith here. I get it. It's, it's fearful to be vocal about what God's doing in your life or to invite somebody to church. I understand the potential rejection and I understand how that might hurt the friendship. I get it. But if life is short and eternity is real and people matter most, is there anything more important to talk about? If everybody is going to spend eternity somewhere and life and death are in the power of our tongues, is there a greater conversation we can have? I don't think so. Please don't let the fear of rejection keep you from a conversation. Rejection was promised when you said yes to Jesus. He said, blessed are you when people reject you, for great is your reward in heaven. Please do not get caught in the cycle of self-serving or self-focused or self-improvement Christianity. People will resonate far more with your failures than they will if you wait till you get to a point of success before you actually open up your mouth and share the gospel with them. And please do not buy into the lie that people have heard it all before and they don't want you to shove religion down their throat. 
You have something far more valuable than religion to offer them. And what if they haven't heard it all before? What if the reason that person identifies as an atheist or as an agnostic or as a non-religious person is because there is a deep-seated fear that if in fact God is real, he wants nothing to do with someone like them and they have not yet experienced the true love and the true grace and the true mercy of Jesus. And, And what if that fear that you feel about opening up your mouth is nothing more than a demonic ploy to keep you from sharing the good news because the enemy knows that they are one conversation away from saying yes because anybody who puts their faith in Jesus will be saved. But we'll never know. We'll never know unless we engage in the conversation. Here's what I know. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you're going to be saved. Everybody who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But how can they be saved unless they believe? And how can they believe unless they hear? And how can they hear unless somebody goes and tells them? Let, let 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 me make that scripture the way I think Paul intended it. How can they hear unless we tell them? Jesus is not asking you to be the savior. He's asking you to be the messenger. To be the kind of people that are vocal about what God's doing in your life. And to be the invitation. Listen, if you've been coming here any length of time, you understand. Here at the Father's house, every single week, there's an opportunity for somebody to say yes to Jesus. If you feel weird about having that conversation, just get them in the house. We'll have the chat for you. But man, I I want us to be stirred to be the messengers of hope and the good news because I think the king has made a decree over our city that people can live and not die and they just don't know it yet. So, so, So let me make this really practical for you. The next three weeks here at the Father's House are gonna be very significant. Uh, next Sunday, uh, we've got some friends joining us from the Father's House, Orange County, uh, Matt and Bianca Oltoff, and they'll be bringing the word. Yes, big fans in the room. And uh, Bianca's an incredible preacher. She was on the A21 uh, board with Christine Kane, uh, rescuing victims from human trafficking, and uh, she's, a, she's a world-renowned voice, and I'm really excited about them being here. I promise you it's going to be an engaging and amazing opportunity to bring somebody to church. Palm Sunday, the week after that, we're going to be sharing about the cross what was afforded to us as a result of Jesus' death on the cross and the freedom that we now get to live in. And then Easter Sunday, no-brainer. Everybody who's breathing, who has actually ever heard of God and can sneeze and say Jesus is gonna be in the room. It It is the easiest opportunity to bring people to the house of God. Statistics say that eight out of 10 people will say yes if you just make the invitation. What am I asking you to do? I'm asking you to just be the invitation. Say, hey, join me at church this weekend. God's doing so much in my life. This is not a ploy to build a church. I could care less about bodies sitting in a room. I care a whole lot about the condition of people's souls. And I think that your influence and your conversations have the ability to bring life to some people that are experiencing death right now. Let's take advantage of the next month. Let's be the invitation. Let's be the messengers. And let's see hope restored in some people that have nothing but a death sentence written over their life. Amen? Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we want to pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church, and click on the prayer and praise link, 
and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.